Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. What we've been clear about is the need for energy supply to, to meet demand. And we've done our part. I'm doing all I can to increase the supply for the United States of America. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective. From D.C.'s top names. We've had four looters that were arrested. Three of the four are illegal aliens. There will be plenty of time to discuss differences between the president and the governor, but now is not the time. Three, three, two, one. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. OPEC cuts production and breathes new life into NOPEC. Welcome to the fastest hour in politics with an historic snub from Saudi Arabia and its oil-producing allies, including Russia, OPEC+, Plus, threatening to send prices higher and revive legislation here in Washington that would allow the U.S. to sue. We'll be joined by former Deputy Secretary of Energy Mark Menzies. Later, we talk with the Republican nominee for governor in Massachusetts, Jeff Deal, endorsed by Donald Trump in one of the bluest states in the nation. And President Biden shares a podium with Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida. We'll see how they got along. We'll talk optics with our signature panel, Bloomberg Politics contributors Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano with us for the hour. The news from Vienna this morning was something. OPEC plus agreeing to make a larger production cut than most expected to keep oil prices high. The White House is not happy as the move was defended by ministers from the producers' group as necessary to protect the oil industry and their own economies. But they also risk causing a global slowdown, if not worse. Saudi Arabia's energy minister, Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman, sounding very pleased with the agreement they reached earlier. Here he is. We have proven not only we are colleagues and we are just a band of brothers that will continue to serve our cause our countries our people opec plus a band of brothers as i see the headline on a great column bloomberg opinion from our own javier blas saudi russian oil axis snubs biden with cuts it was not that long ago of course joe biden was in saudi arabia asking for additional production and we'll get to that reaction today though from washington the state department here's anthony blinken what we've been clear about is the need for energy supply to, to meet demand. That's what we've been working on across the board. And we've done our part. Um, United States oil production is up by more than 500,000 barrels a day. As you know, uh, we have tapped into the strategic petroleum reserve as well. 
We've done our part, he says. But breaking with tradition, as again Javier Blas reminds us, in its history, OPEC and its new incarnation, OPEC Plus, has never cut out books so much, so quickly, while Brent crude was still flirting with $100 a barrel, and it looks like New York crude will be close behind. This is where we begin our conversation with Mark Menzies, former Deputy Energy Secretary during the Trump administration. Mark, it's great to have you with us here. Just to first understand, I know it's difficult to connect the dots between oil production and gasoline prices here in the U.S., but after, what, 98 straight days of declines, it feels like the honeymoon is over here for the Biden administration. <laughs> well, thank you, Joe. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be uh, with you and your listeners this afternoon. Um, well, to be sure, um, the price at the pump typically, though, is tied to the global price of oil. Uh-huh. That's not a surprise. And so, uh, you know, retailers typically look for the price of replacement of, you know, a particular uh, tank. So we've known historically, uh, indeed, the retail prices track the global price of oil. So mm-hmm. when you hear the president and policymakers saying we're trying to drive down the price uh, of oil, it's because they know that ultimately it will flow through uh, sure. the prices. But when you have, you know, refining bottlenecks and you have seasonal blends there, are, I realize there are a lot of different things that can go into this. The point is, though, five weeks before the midterms, uh, this is not good news. Well, it's not. And indeed, all presidents are always concerned about the price of gasoline running yeah. up to elections uh, because it never fares well for the party in power when you're uh, paying large amounts of money, unexpected uh, money that you haven't budgeted to fill up you know, your truck or your car. Mm-hmm. Um, it was interesting. So uh, listening to the comments of the Saudi Arabia minister reminded me of 2018 when I, representing the U.S. government, attended an international conference. And the Saudi Arabian minister then and the Russian energy minister took huh. glee in announcing that they were going to continue to reduce production. Uh, to keep prices up. And so what did the United States do at that time? You might remember that what the past administration did was to encourage U.S. production. Uh, we had achieved breakthrough technologies in uh, in the shale play, and we yeah. became the, the, the number one producer of oil and natural gas in the world. And well, this is something we talk about, you know, every day here on Bloomberg, and we've been tracking very closely this dysfunctional relationship between the Biden administration and drillers who found themselves holding the bag, right? Prices got so low, they said, we're not going to invest in doing this again because you're going to pull out the rug from under us. But now that we're down 2 million barrels a day here, the Biden administration has very few options, right? I mean, you can't just turn, as we've learned, you can't just turn on the spigot especially when something like COVID shuts it down? Well, to be sure, it takes time to come online. But to be, to be clear about it, we have capacity in the United States that were this administration to simply turn to the U.S. producers and say, look, we want to work with you and support your production. We yeah. will grant permits. We will protect your investments. We will allow a return on your investment. But please help us out of this. Help mm-hmm. us increased production. They did it before. They came uh, online in 2019. And in 2019, the U.S. led the world in oil production. Indeed, just last year. Your your listeners uh, might be surprised to know that in 2021, the U.S. was the leading producer of yeah. U.S. oil. You'd but be you know, surprised the, about the, our the listeners. Increase, 
Well, well, the increase, the increase came where from the Permian Basin, Uh the Permian Basin in Texas, beyond the reach of federal regulators. So when you look at where the U.S. production increase has come that Secretary Blinken was taking credit for, it's it's really Texas and Haynesville play Uh in Louisiana. That's where the production has come. It has not come from uh, the areas that really produced uh, during the past administration to really make up for the reduced amount from Saudi Arabia. The reaction uh, from the White House today, the statement was blistering. And uh, just a portion here, this is a quote I'm reading from the statement. The president is disappointed by the short-sighted decision by OPEC Plus to cut production quotas while the global economy is dealing with the continued negative impact of Putin's invasion of Ukraine. The political side of this is really something, uh, Mark, when you consider... Uh, our own column here from Javier Blas Mm -hmm. referring to the Saudi Russian oil axis. Is this actually what's going on here that, that, that Saudi Arabia has decided that the war in Ukraine and, and the pleas from the United States are less urgent than it's maintaining a relationship with Russia. Well, what their concern is, is that the global prices, unless it's propped up, they can't fund their government. So Russia can't fund its totalitarian regime and Saudi Arabia and the OPEC countries can't fund their monarchies. But that's the thing, right? If, I mean, Brent is near $100 a barrel, Mark. Well, it's already really the prices are historically high. Is it, So they must be right. assuming there's a recession looming and that these can't cannot be sustained. Is that your view? Well, what they what they're presuming is that the Biden administration will not call on U.S. producers to increase production like the last uh, uh, administration did. And so they're they're basically betting that President Biden will be hamstrung running up to the midterm elections, not calling for an increase in production rather than and calling on the U.S. producers to reduce prices and talking about a global price. Uh, And so that's where Russia and Saudi Arabia are united in saying this current administration won't do anything. The The thing is, we know the Biden administration, the Permian Basin, the Biden administration has been begging for more production. We've heard the the pleas coming uh, from the White House. You're I I want to go a step deeper than that. What is the difference, though, between the way uh, the way you incentivize drillers and the way that this White House is it about is it about promising to your point earlier that we will support your investment? How do you convince oil companies to drill shale when you're begging them and, and, and they, they don't trust you? There are pending permit applications that have been fully vetted um, and have satisfied all environmental concerns that this administration is delaying or sitting on. They're simply not acting on them. You don't read about it in the press. Yeah, they're telling they a very different story. We hear about the 9,000 unused leases, right? Right. Well, and that's and that's really a misrepresentation uh, about the process that it takes to get the permits to drill uh, and produce. So if this administration simply stops issuing moratoria uh, on offshore production mm-hmm. and encourages and grants permits, uh, let me tell you what will happen is that these price signals will be sent to the global markets and there will be immediate downward pressure. Yeah, you'll see futures drop increased production mm-hmm. will drive those prices down. This administration has tried it with the uh, release of the uh, Strategic Petroleum Reserve. They right. have done that. That has had minimal value. What's surprising to me is that the president is offering to OPEC countries as an inducement not to reduce production 
that he will buy OPEC oil to put in our own strategic petroleum reserve. Imagine that. When we were in office, we put bids out to fill our SPRO, as it's called, yeah. with what? U.S.-produced oil. Huh. Well, we, we just It's just a big disconnect uh, between an obvious solution right there that I think most Americans would expect the president to say, you know what? We don't need OPEC. We don't. We can produce as much oil that flows through the Strait of Hormuz on any given day. We well, we'd like to see it happen if that's the case, because we're going to have to refill that thing. Mark, thank you for being here. Mark Menzies, the former Deputy Secretary of Energy, uh, with a very different view than what you're hearing from the White House, certainly, and even from the Middle East, or I guess I should be more specific to say Vienna today. We're going to assemble the panel next and get their take, because as I mentioned, this movement on Capitol Hill, the NOPEC bill would allow us to sue OPEC nations. Is that the right course? We'll have more next. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business, demands. At the Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how the Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. I tell you, July seems like so long ago, the big visit to Saudi Arabia. And of course, at that point, the president was taking Heavy-duty criticism for shaking hands. Remember, shaking hands with MBS in the name of oil. And he didn't leave with, you know, a promise for anything specific. They said it was about more than that. But we listen to the discussion on President ensuring Biden global here. energy security and adequate oil supplies to support global economic growth. And that will begin shortly. I'm, and, uh, and I'm doing all I can to increase the supply for the United States of America, which I expect to happen. The Saudis share that urgency. And based on our discussions today, I expect we'll see further steps in the coming weeks. If 
fast forward to October 5th, and it is looking and feeling a lot different. Now, of course, again, gas prices down 98 days in a row. Things have changed, and there is a greater expectation for an economic downturn, if not a full-on recession here, which would have a major impact on oil prices. So everybody's looking out for number one. Let's assemble the panel. Rick Davis is here, and Jeannie Shanzano, Bloomberg Politics contributors, make up our signature panel on Sound On. Jeannie, how bad does this hurt? You saw the statement today from the White House. that They're just flat-out angry. They are flat-out angry, and I think the sign of how bad this hurts and how bad they knew it was going to hurt is we heard talk just before this meeting that the White House was panicking, that they were trying to lobby uh, members of OPEC to see if they could, you know, in some way encourage them not to take this step. And you were just talking about some of the ways in which they tried to dangle, you know, you know, we're willing to buy the oil to restock the uh, our reserves over here. Um, they tried desperately. They even We even heard they reached out to Janet yellin to get the treasury to do some lobbying it all fell flat and despite that you know fist bump heard around the world you know just a few months ago and now some people in the white house have said this is a total disaster five weeks to go when yeah, let's let's be honest one of the things we've said uh particularly on the democratic side that biden has done well is oil prices had been going down or gas prices going down a hundred yeah, that's the one know, thing they had days. going for it was one positive sign and it could reverse itself at the very worst time for them so uh, what's your view on this, Rick? Obviously, uh, the Saudis could have uh, taken any number of courses here and, and, and to go this far for for a cut of, of this magnitude is is Saudi Arabia siding with Russia? Is it as simple as that? Well, there's no question that Saudi Arabia has given a lot of aid and comfort to Russia during the uh, uh, attack on Ukraine. You know, they haven't said a word that would be considered helpful to Ukraine or the United States or the access that's supporting Ukraine. Uh, And if anything, you know, uh, we heard it from them directly. They see each other's brothers. This is a cartel, right? I mean, like, what, when did we ever think a cartel was a good thing? We're the other guys. We think cartels are bad. (laughs) And what I can't figure out is why anybody thought this wasn't going to happen. I mean, you know, when you look at what Biden didn't get when he went over there to suck up to MBS and try and get a reduction in price of oil, uh, increasing uh, supply. He didn't get anything. He got 100000 a day, and that was a drop in a bucket. Yeah. Uh, and he got lucky, and prices went down. And, and then in, in the period of time since then, there's been an all-out war against Russia and their oil production out of Europe, right? We're talking about price caps and tra- uh-huh. trade limitations with Europe on Russian oil. This is their friend, their brother at OPEC plus. And, and even on our own side, you know, we've been talking about ways of sanctioning uh, people doing business with the Russian oil trade. So yeah, right. why we didn't think it was going to come back to haunt us is uh, a surprise to me. I mean, I think the white house protests too much. They should have seen this coming. We knew there was going to be a bump up in price anyway, because of the fall you know, winter months coming in. But right. like this is this is shocking that it was shocking. Yeah. You wonder if if the statement makes us look, uh, you know, more helpless. Jeannie, the statement today, a tweet from Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut. I thought the whole point of selling arms to the Gulf states, he writes, despite their human rights abuses, nonsensical Yemen war working against U.S. interests in Libya, Sudan, etc., was that when an international crisis came, the Gulf could choose America over Russia and China. So it does feel like we have an answer to that question, and maybe that shouldn't be a surprise, Jeannie, but I wonder if people like Chris Murphy are going to warm up 
to this idea of the NOPEC legislation that would allow the U.S. to actually sue OPEC nations. Maybe this is just a pipe dream, but is this the next conversation we're going to have in D.C.? Yeah, and I mean, this is a conversation we've been having, what, for 20 years on and off Mm -hmm. in D.C. We've seen these bills come forward. We've seen, you know, pushed back on them um, from a variety of of sectors. Um, Some people saying, you know, just because you're angry at a time of crisis, you shouldn't go this far. You know, another country could turn this around on us vis-a-vis agriculture or something else. Fair enough. But I do think that is going to be one of the conversations. Remove their immunity shield, allow for these antitrust suits to go forward. But the reality is that is, you know, in my view, at least addressing you know, addressing sort of the ramifications and not addressing the cause of the problem. And we need to address the cause of the problem. We cannot be reliant on OPEC for our energy needs. And so this is where the conversation has to go. So as much as I appreciate the frustration that should we sue them in the aftermath, I don't think that that is quite the answer that we should look for from our public officials. And, you know, I do agree with Rick to the extent that I can't believe the administration would be surprised after his trip and what happened in the aftermath that this is where we are today um, unless there's something behind the scenes we weren't privy to and promises were made that weren't kept. It does look like the White House is open to it. Part of that statement goes on to write, in light of today's action, the administration will also consult with Congress on additional tools and authorities to reduce OPEC's control over energy prices. Our signature panel will be back. Rick and Jeannie, I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. It was only about a month ago, early September, when Jeff Deal won the Republican nomination for governor in Massachusetts to run against the state's Democratic Attorney General, Maura Healey, the Democratic nominee. He spoke to supporters in Boston. So we've got to empower also parents to keep that political agenda out of the classrooms. And I believe schools teaching the ABCs and the one, two, threes are important for parents to be leading. Maura Healey. Maura Healy believes in a different type of education, W-O-K-E, all right? Endorsed by Donald Trump, he was, in fact, Donald Trump's state campaign chair back in 2016, made an unsuccessful run for Senate against Elizabeth Warren, and now he's seeking the corner office in Massachusetts and joins us now on Bloomberg Sound On. Jeff Deal, welcome back to Bloomberg Radio. Hey, thanks, Joe. I appreciate the time. So five weeks to the election here. I don't I'm sure you don't need me to tell you. And I'm sure you're seeing the same polls that I see. The latest from Suffolk University has Maura Healy up by 26 points. 538 shows a 25 point lead. The real clear poll of polls with a 22 point spread. Jeff Deal, are you planning to stay in this race? (laughs) Of course. Look, I think three days after my uh, primary win, we saw a poll from Emerson College that put us ahead with uh, independence, which is 57% of the electorate in Massachusetts, by 16 points over Maura Healy when it comes to the economy. And of course, I think we know right now, it's very much uh, about the economy, right? Uh, that's that's where the focus, I think, in the midterms is going to be, in Massachusetts. Yeah, well, of course, Maura Healy says that you would like to ban abortion if you were elected. She's obviously seeing that as a major issue as well. Is she wrong? Yeah, I mean, abortion's not on the table for this state. Uh, the Roe Act was passed a, about a year, year and a half ago, um, and it, uh, it basically codifies Roe v. Wade into law before the Supreme Court even struck it down. You know, my job as governor is to execute law and protect people's health care choices. Um, that includes, I think, health care choices where people were fired because they, they were, didn't get the vaccine and uh, they, they 
state jobs, they were required to leave those jobs, or and a lot of them took early retirement. So, look, whether it's uh, you know honoring uh, the, the fact that the legislature has has passed Roe v. Wade and, and women have the, the right to abortion, or whether it's uh, again protecting people's healthcare choices when it comes to vaccines, I think this is uh, you know it's it's an issue that is no longer on the table for Massachusetts. Okay. Uh- the polls I mentioned, you mentioned that number from Emerson College. Do the others have it wrong? And if they don't, how do you close that spread in five weeks? No, I mean, uh, you're always going to see a Republican down in the polls in Massachusetts. You're always going to see a Republican, you know, uh, on the wrong end of fundraising numbers because, you know, we always in this state, I think, are underdogs. But at the same time, Scott Brown won in 2010, and he was down significantly with only weeks to go before his U.S. Senate win uh, in 2010. And then uh, the other thing is Charlie Baker, uh, also down in the polls uh, before he ended up winning uh, his governorship. You know, it's typical for Massachusetts to have a Republican that runs uh, for U.S. Senate like I did in 2018. You make an introduction for yourself. I received almost a million votes in that election cycle. And then, uh, you know, once people know who they are and, yeah. and trust the message, you, you can win as governor. So it's, uh, it's something that's happened before, and I think we're going to— Well, you're a little uh, bit of a different Republican, though, right? I'm, of course, I remember meeting you in Cleveland at the Republican National Convention— Jeff Deal, you were the only elected Republican from the state who showed up to support Donald Trump as his state campaign chair. Do you consider yourself a MAGA Republican, as the president (laughs) refers? I'm a working class Republican. My wife and I uh, own a small business. We, uh, you know, I I used to be a Democrat 14 years ago. Uh, For me, I've been in office since uh, I I served first in 2010 uh, through 2019. So I was six years into office before President Trump came into play. Mm -hmm. And uh, the fact of the matter is I've always tried to put the working folks of my state ahead of, uh, you know, the special interest groups on Beacon Hill. I think that's what President Trump uh, at the time was trying to do, which was make sure that – Washington, you know, trying to drain the swamp. I mean, there's a lot of uh, special interest money that uh, seems to override the will of the people. So, you know, what he did uh, while he was in office was give us a robust economy. He was able to bring troops back from uh, foreign engagements that no longer served a national interest. And he also wanted to talk about making sure we secured our borders so that we, uh, you know, could make sure immigration was done correctly. Well, I ask you that because a year ago, October, you said publicly the 2020 election was rigged and you called for a forensic audit of Joe Biden's victory in Massachusetts. Do you still believe that? So what I think is that, uh, first of all, I have a trouble with the mail-in balloting. I think that uh, even in Massachusetts, we've seen ballots uh, requests mailed out to people who no longer live in apartments that uh, they've been there. In fact, I have two in my possession that show that you know, a request was sent out to people who hadn't lived there for a while. That's a problem. Wisconsin is banned uh, mail-in balloting. That's a problem. Yeah. But rigging to me is beyond just the, the balloting itself. Rigging is the fact that when President Trump was first elected, you know, the FBI was investigating him based on uh, dossiers that were provided by the Clinton administration and used to basically wiretap his uh, campaign and then his transition offices. You know, and from the day he was elected, the media has been trying to bring him down. The FBI continues to try to bring him down. Yeah. And the media the media itself suppressed any information about the Hunter Biden laptop. The uh, So it was rigged Pharma. by the media is what you're saying. Well, I, I think it's there was an effort by everybody to stop somebody who was trying to end the games down in Washington, D.C. You know, I, th- I think he faced unprecedented levels of coordination against him. And, uh, I mean, to the point where the vaccines were held back before, you know, they were available in October, but weren't made available to the public, uh, you know, just to try to make it look like he wasn't successful in getting them rolled out. Everything that he did clearly was questioned by the 
by the uh, the media, and yet he had again low unemployment. He had uh, you know I think a robust economy where the stock market was taking off. So you know I, I don't need to rehash the last uh, four year, the four years before, but we've had two years now of President Biden, and you see you know very little scrutiny about uh, the foreign policy that has now allowed Russia to invade Ukraine. You've seen very little talk about how the inflation and mortgage rates are rising and making our whole It's all we talk about here, actually. Uh, but, well, you know, Donald Trump endorsed you for governor the day after you made that statement that the election was rigged. Is that what you need to say to get his endorsement? No, look, I mean, he and I had a discussion about it. I had, hadn't uh, really thought too much about the election cycle itself until he explained to me uh, what what uh, he had felt had gone wrong there. Yeah. And so, you know, that was really just an extension of talking to him. Following the events of January 6th, do you think that he should be allowed to be president again? Would you would you endorse him again or, or, or chair his campaign? Well, if obviously he decides to run again, uh, you know, we'll see if there's any competition out there. Um, you know, and I think uh, DeSantis obviously has made the case that he might be one of the contenders out there. So yeah. um, whether it's DeSantis or whether it's Trump, I'm more likely to support a Republican over Joe Biden, for sure. Ron DeSantis did not encourage an insurrection at the Capitol, though. That's not that's not a difference maker to you? You know, I have a difference of opinion on that. I don't think that that's exactly what transpired, though the media, again, tries to make it out to be that uh, he did that. I think that he, in fact, tried to encourage uh Capital to uh, be protected by National Guard, and that was turned down. Okay. I, I think, yeah, I, I have a total difference of opinion on that. You mentioned Ron DeSantis. Uh, Joe Biden is down in Florida today, uh, meeting with the governor here. What's your thought? Is since you brought him up, do you approve of DeSantis shipping migrants to Martha's Vineyard in what apparently was a move to embarrass liberals in the state? I think what uh, you know, Governor DeSantis was doing was highlighting. The problem we have with immigration in our country and uh, the fact that certain states seem to be bearing the burden versus other states about the uh, overflow of people into the country. And, uh, you know, certainly I don't think these people were tricked, though, right? They were lied to. Some laws apparently may have been broken because of that. Well, I think that there's lawyers looking into that, but I do believe they were also uh, given waivers to to sign off on. So, you know, again, I don't know exactly what happened, but uh, I I guess that'll be litigated. Jeff Deal, Governor Charlie Baker uh, succeeded in drawing support from across the aisle. Uh, he's leaving office with some of the highest approval ratings of, of any governor in the country. A lot of your supporters, and indeed the state Republican Party, call Charlie Baker a rhino. Are they right? <laughs> Look, I, I, Char- I supported Charlie back in 2010, 2014, 2018, when he ran for re-election each of those two uh, times. Uh, ran for election in 14 and re-election in 18. The the fact of the matter is Charlie Baker has done the best that he can with a very left-leaning legislature that has uh, delivered driver's licenses for illegals, and he vetoed that. They overrode him anyway. You know, that's the mentality that he's been having to fight for a long time, and uh, I think he's done the best that he could. Obviously, there's some challenges still with the MBTA. There's some challenges. I I disagreed with him on the vaccine mandates that forced people out of their state jobs. We're going to return those people back on day one. And uh, I think there's, you know, it's okay to be have difference of opinions with governors, but uh, I think he's done the best that he could in the time he served. He's the Republican nominee for the Massachusetts gubernatorial election running against Maura Healey, currently the Attorney General. Jeff Deal, we thank you for being with us again on Bloomberg. Thanks, Joe. I appreciate it. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. 
The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At the Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how the Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Steeple and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Steeple's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Steeple last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Fascinating conversation uh, for a candidate who's clearly in a very difficult fight here. And, you know, I was asking the questions, he was answering them. You tend to get the pivot to inflation and some of the other stories that have been working well for Republicans on the trail instead of, well, what you just heard. Let's reassemble the panel. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano are here, Bloomberg Politics contributors. Uh, Fascinating. Uh, Rick, I don't know how you would have advised uh, Jeff Deal for a conversation like that, but this is not a race for governor in Texas. He's running in Massachusetts to replace one of, I think we could argue, one of the most moderate Republican governors and popular, by the way, in the country. How does that square with what you just heard? Uh, I don't know what he was running for. Um, to talk more about Joe Biden than he did about Maura Healy. Uh, I That's think true. if I were 22 points down, I'd be focused on my opponent, not the president. Um, if he thinks he's going to get a dra- groundswell of support with that kind of an act, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd suggest he, you know, maybe head down to the Keys or someplace and play golf and enjoy himself because he'll be unemployed, you know, come November. Um, I, I really don't think those messages are going to work in a state like Massachusetts uh, defending Donald Trump the way he just did. Yeah. I, what's your take on this, Jeannie? If you're more a Healy, this is what you want to hear, right? Very, very happy. She's not only up by double digits, but the path is very narrow for for Jeff Deal. Unfortunately, you know, when you were talking to him, I was thinking about the debate between Abbott and O'Rourke the other day. Abbott mentioned Joe Biden 40 times. You know who he didn't talk about? He didn't talk about Donald Trump, even down in Texas, because it's Democrats that talk about Donald Trump. Donald Trump is not a winning discussion item for Republicans across the country. They talk inflation. They talk prices of gas. They talk the economy. And you know what? If you're going to win a Republican governorship in Massachusetts, you are going to be described as a rhino. And that's okay. That's how you get a (laughs) Bill Weld or a Charlie Baker or Mitt Romney. That's right. Those are the names you just rolled out there. Uh, Rick, you know, the legacy of 
Republican governors actually being quite successful. Now, granted, uh, moderate Republicans being successful in Massachusetts as seen as kind of a check or balance to what is typically uh, a very liberal legislature. There's like five Republicans or something in the House. <laughs> um, that's the way it goes there. Uh, but but for for Maura Healy, I don't know. You remember the Scott Brown uh, race, I'm sure, Rick. And he had been counted out. And the story was one of complacency. Does Maura Healy actually have to be out knocking on doors when you're 35 points ahead? For sure. Um, she shouldn't take anything for granted. Uh, she should feel good about where the state of the race is as far out. And and yet um, uh, the thing you got to be impressed by voters in Massachusetts, they listen. Uh, they're they're well attuned to politics and, and the issues. And if you make a case to them, they'll consider you. And that's how you've had those three Republican governors in the last you know three decades uh, who've been able to um, to succeed uh, in a predominantly democratic state. So um, uh, fair play uh, and and make a good case. And more um, Healy has uh, an opportunity uh, to to uh, become governor based on her appeal and how hard she works. And it's all mm-hmm. set up there for her. Um, uh, look, uh, to use an overused phrase. I know Charlie Baker, and deal is no Charlie Baker. <laughs> well, fair enough. Uh, Rick, that's why you're here. And Jeannie, uh, you know, I don't know if you're putting Maura Healy out at T-stops to shake hands and so forth. She's got a lot of money. She's got name recognition uh, after many years as attorney general. But I thought it was noteworthy that she thanked Charlie Baker in her acceptance speech, almost acting as if uh, she was closer to Baker in the other party than the nominee we just heard from. That's right. I mean, she wants to show her moderate bona fide. She wants to show that she can reach across the aisle. She certainly doesn't want a repeat of Republicans winning as they have. What is it out of the last six governorships in Massachusetts? Five of them, if I have my numbers right, have been Mm. Republican. So she's smart to do that. And you see the party in her campaign. The ads are tying her opponent to the you know the the uh, legitimacy of the 2020 election issue yeah. to his praise of Supreme Court justices Trump's named to the issue of abortion so this is where they're going and she's got a smart team behind her and she's got a double digit lead in quite frankly a year that should be a little tougher for Democrats How about that Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis our signature panel we're going to turn to the visit to Florida this is what everyone's been waiting for us to talk about right Biden DeSantis sharing a podium i'm not going to tell you if there was a hug or not they papered over their tensions as i read on the terminal what would happen what could have gone wrong knowing that this was a little dicey for both joe biden and ron DeSantis? the big visit the presidential visit today to the state of florida following of course hurricane ian and we discussed look there's lots of uh, this great history of pitfalls here ask chris christie ask charlie christ who's happens to be running against ron desantis but things seem to go fairly well here i I don't know what the fallout will be for ron desantis necessarily but everybody was cordial everybody was careful and i'll tell you now there was no hug Kayla gardner with the byline on the terminal biden desantis paper over tensions in visit to ian ravaged area the president toured with the the press pool from a uh, couple of helicopters, came back down, got a briefing with DeSantis, and then held a news conference. Serious. We're one of the few nations in the world that on a basis of a crisis we face, we're the only nation that comes out of it better than we went into it. 
And that's what we're going to do this time around. Come out of it better because we're this is the United States of America. And I emphasize United. This is after he was warmly greeted, not at the airport, but 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 in person by for this event, uh, Ron DeSantis. Uh, big open hand handshake. Mr. President, thank you for coming. Here's what he had to say. We were very fortunate to have good coordination uh, with the White House and with FEMA from the very beginning of this. We declared a state of emergency last Friday, September 23rd. This wasn't even, this was a disturbance uh, out there by Columbia. And then the next day we got a major disaster declaration approved by the president. uh, And we really appreciated that. So how does that hit you? After all the silliness and the political theatrics frequently on both sides of the aisle. It reminds us that so much of it is an act. Let's reassemble the panel. Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis are back with us. How'd they do uh, today, Rick? Is that the way you would have advised both sides here? Yeah, no, this was uh, a good day for both leaders. Um, You know, so much of this kind of event can result in self-inflicted wounds, a la George W. Bush going to Katrina. (laughs) I mean, you know, it wasn't the situation that caused him problems. He caused himself a problem. And so the fact that uh, President Biden acted presidential, said all the right things, Governor DeSantis led the state and appreciated the federal assistance. I mean, this is what it's supposed to be like. So no, no self-inflicted wounds and a, a good day for the United States of America. Yeah. yeah. So how silly will they look when they go back to spitballing at each other, Jeannie? Well, we will remember back to this rare moment of bipartisanship and unity. Only a hurricane could bring Republicans and Democrats together in the U.S. Um, But here's what I'm going to do, Joe. I'm going to keep watching Truth Social because Donald Trump was out Mm. today talking about a nation in decline, the fact that we're a failing nation, attacking Biden. He didn't name DeSantis by name yet, but I think that's one of the issues that DeSantis may face is a question of whether Trump attacks him for the collegiality and i think and i agree with rick that they were right to act this way that they were being the adults in the room so we'll see if donald trump comes back and attacks desantis for this cooperation with the biden administration (laughs) because we know that he's bothered by ron desantis right that that you know trump would love to find an opening here actually wouldn't he rick uh, you know, Trump looks for an opening everywhere he can get it. Uh, sure. Everything is about Donald Trump. He would actually see somehow that this is about him. Uh, it makes no sense, but uh, so much of what he does doesn't. Um, I, I think you got to keep focused on the fact that this is going to be a Herculean effort to get uh, the West Coast of Florida back on its legs. Yeah. Uh, it's going to take hundreds of billions, tens of billions of dollars uh, in a combined federal state initiative with the commercial uh, industry coming to, to the table to really uh, uh, get that state back on track. And, and, and I think the asterisk here is whether or not George or whether or not Donald Trump uh, uh, is happy about it or not. Who cares? Well, that's right. I just wonder if there are uh, midterm implications here, Jeannie. Is that just a wash today or, or do Democrats actually get good marks for showing up? And by that, I mean the administration, of course, showing up in Florida and 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 being adults 
You know, I'm not sure there will be midterm implications directly because we're only five weeks out. Um, And so I think a lot of it depends on what happens in the many, many months, if not years going forward as this recovery effort continues. I do think it has given the governor an opportunity to show that he is competent, that he is an executive, that he can handle a crisis, not just to people in his own state, but as he thinks about 24, to people around the country who may not be as familiar with Ron DeSantis or who may only know him as a guy sending, you know, uh, asylum seekers uh, to far-flung places. So all of a sudden he's got to be less political, if you will, and more the governor and the the person who knows how to uh, deal with a crisis and and, and address the needs of his citizens. So that's potentially good for him. Of course, a lot of it depends on what happens going forward. Mm -hmm. Um, There's so many issues that impact the midterms, everything from infrastructure to housing to insurance to issues of energy and green issues. I'm not sure those will resonate directly in this race, yeah. though, because so many other things are at play. It's interesting when you think of how many of those connect to climate as well. Um, but did you guys uh, both see the boots? You see the, the the white rubber knee-high boots that he was wearing? He tucked the jeans into them. Am I the only one who saw this? Because somebody on the campaign's got to be advising. They should have, Rick, they should have held up a picture of Michael Dukakis, No. Well, he wasn't wearing a funny helmet, that's for sure. Um, and, <laughs> no. and I don't know if I would characterize his boot selection as off color. Uh, but uh, but look, I mean, just picking up where uh, Jeannie left off, this was a really good day for Ron DeSantis. You know, like he, he got to look like he was cutting deals with the federal government and the president of the United States and helping yeah. the state of Florida. This isn't a great day for Charlie Crist. You know, I mean, when you talk about the implications, you know, there were a lot of expectations that he could put a run together. And this is, you know, it's now going to have been a week since anybody even heard his name. So that's not great, you know, four weeks out from an election. Well, that's real political fallout. Uh, would you wear boots like that, Jeannie, yourself? I'm, I'm guessing no. I probably wouldn't myself. I don't think anybody would need to see me in those boots. But you know what? <laughs> you you got to like look you the pull part. Them off. I feel like you could pull them off. Thank you, Rick Joe and Matthew. Jeannie, I'll of try course, it. Absolutely. <laughs> Rick and Jeannie, for just a couple of more moments, you know we like to feel good about things sometimes. And the silver lining so frequently comes from the same source. Yeah, I'll send you a picture of the boots, Rick. That source is NASA and, by extension, SpaceX in many cases. We had a big launch today, and there was something very special involved. All right, let's wind it up. Let's listen. There it goes. It clears the pad. Beautiful launch to the International Space Station. (laughs) Just, I love listening to these guys in the control room. They'll get to the space station Thursday after that launch from NASA's Kennedy Space Center that, of course, yes, stage one propulsion. You heard it and saw it, of course, on Bloomberg. Uh, They'll come back to Earth in March. But for the first time in 20 years, a Russian cosmonaut went from the United States, launched from the U.S. here to space. Uh, Japanese uh, astronauts were also Alongside, But the fact that Russia's lone female cosmonaut, Anna Kikina, if I'm saying it right, uh, Jeannie, uh, makes us realize sometimes that we're just people here, right? 
That's right. And another, you know, a moment of cooperation following on the one we were just talking about, but this one international at a time when there's been so much tension in the space program as a result of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. You know, it is really good to see that this happened. And of course, we've also got a female commander, Nicole Mann, who's an absolutely, you know, astonishingly impressive woman when you look at Mm -hmm. her background and the first Native American to fly in space. And I think the first female SpaceX flight. So, you know, to command a SpaceX flight. So what a day today to see them all go up. And Joe, her pilot call sign is Duke. So there you go. (laughs) It's pretty great stuff, Rick, in our remaining seconds. NASA has a way of erasing borders. Yeah, uh, the world is uh, uh, all one border to them. And and I think that's important that we keep some level of uh, uh, cooperation. There it is. uh, This is Bloomberg. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.